turn with me this evening to Matthew chapter 13, the New Testament scriptures, Matthew chapter 13. One of my favorite chapters in Matthew, not that that matters, doesn't make it more special or more Bible than any other chapter, but I really enjoy studying the parables of Matthew 13. Very illuminating, one of those key passages that maybe helps shed light on other passages in God's Word. So, provides a key or a door into a larger world of understanding. Matthew chapter 13 will be our focus tonight. Let me read for the opening reading, verses 1 through 17. Let's hear now God's Word. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell among the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And then is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving, for this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly, I tell you, Many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Amen. We'll end our reading there, and let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, this is your word, your holy word, and it treats weighty topics such as our very ability to understand your truth and the necessity of you giving us understanding. Yet it also calls for a response that having heard, we would indeed be doers of the word. And it treats majestic things like the truth, the power of your kingdom, the power of the words of the Lord Jesus. So give us understanding during this time. Help us to rejoice in your truth and to respond to your word in the right way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come out of a few weeks of examining chapters 11 and 12, which gave us a series of examples of people responding in different ways 
to Jesus, the Messiah. Some were positive. Is this the son of David? We believe in you. We want to follow you. Others were negative. The Pharisees and the religious leaders and the scribes challenging Jesus, attributing his works to the work of Satan. And some were confused. John the Baptist needing a little reassurance in prison that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. And as we went through the chapters, we noticed that hostility to Jesus increased the further we got. Someone was turning the temperature up progressively as we moved through chapters 11 and 12. The doubts, the rejection, the hostility grew as we got to the end of that chapter. And so the purpose then of chapter 13 is to explain that difference. Why do some respond well to Jesus while others reject him? Why does the kingdom of God suffer opposition even though it is a powerful message? Well, chapter 13 answers that question and it does it through parables. Matthew 18 contains eight parables. Now what we won't do is look at each one in detail. We won't go sequentially verse by verse through this chapter as we have done other sections. Instead, we're just going to dip in and out of several of the parables in order to see the one big idea, the major theme of the chapter. Chapter 13 is one of the discourses in Matthew's Gospel. So five different times Matthew has collected material and organized it in such a way that we have a long discourse of Jesus on a given topic. This one stands out from the others because, again, it is dominated by parables. And some of these are very well known. I bet you've heard the parable of the sower preached before. I'm pretty sure I've preached it before uh, in this church. Or the parable of the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the weeds. And others are very short. The parable of the mustard seed, parable of the pearl. But, but together, all eight parables give us this big idea, this explanation of the contrast between those who follow Jesus and those do not. And we'll find the explanation lies in the nature of the kingdom. What is God's kingdom like? How does God's kingdom come? That is what these parables will tell us in this chapter tonight. But right before we focus on the kingdom, the question we can ask, because it's the same question the disciples asked, is why does Jesus speak in parables? Why answer, why talk about the kingdom this way? What's their purpose? What is their message? How can we make sense of them? And on that question, Jesus gives us two answers. First, look down the page at verses 34 and 35. We read there, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Why does Jesus speak in parables? Look at that last phrase. To utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Jesus speaks in parables to reveal what has been concealed. To reveal what has been concealed. 
Here's what I mean by that. There are truths in these parables that reveal things dimly seen in the Old Testament. Truths just generally reveal, hard to understand in the Old Testament. The parables reveal them. The parables unfold them. The parables make sense of them. So, for example, one of the big promises of the Old Testament is the coming of God's kingdom, the coming of God's reign. That God himself would show up one day and save and regather and restore his people. Many Jews in Jesus' day were expecting that eminently, that, that it would instantly, very soon appear. But what Jesus will reveal in this chapter is that God's kingdom will come, but it will come in a way that goes against the current expectations. And this isn't going to be the first time Jesus has broached this. He's been revealing this progressively in his teaching. It's one of the reasons for his rejection. One of the reasons people are stumbling over him. But as he will do in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to open our eyes to the fact that God's ways are not always our ways. He's got to take the blinders off of human tradition so that we can see how God actually works. So he's going to make clear some things. He's going to reveal some things which are heretofore somewhat Conceal. But that leads me then to the second purpose of parables. And here you're going to see I'm having a little fun with you. The second purpose is to conceal what has been revealed. So while on the one hand parables reveal what's been concealed, they also conceal what has been revealed. And here's what I mean by that. Look again at verses 11 through 13. This is the answer to the question, why do you speak to the people in parables? Jesus says, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Those seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear. Or understand. And while Jesus has come to enact the kingdom, to establish God's reign, there are many who do not want to hear what he has to say. And for them, the parables will actually conceal information. Though, if they don't have the eyes to see, if they don't have the ears to hear, what he says in the parables won't convince them. In fact, it will only blind them further to Jesus' message. And that's the point of that long quotation from Isaiah, the prophet there. You've been rejecting all along, well then you're just going to get what you've already set yourself up for. The things that are revealed here, flesh and blood doesn't reveal, but the Heavenly Father does. A theme Jesus has touched on already and will return to in Matthew 16. What do we see at the end of the last chapter? Give us a sign. No more signs. Only the sign of the prophet Jonah. If you don't have ears to hear, this is not going to change your mind. But for those with eyes to see, this will make sense of what God is doing and how God's kingdom comes. So what does Jesus say then about the kingdom in these parables? Let me highlight three main ideas for us tonight. First, the kingdom of God starts small and apparently fails. The kingdom of God starts small and apparently 
fails. And that's one of the ideas that Jesus' hearers would struggle with. They expect the immediate appearance of the kingdom, the overthrow of, of evil, the regathering of Israel, and the fact that it's not going to happen quite like that is a stumbling block. And it's understandable, again, on one level, I mean, the very phrase, kingdom of heaven, implies power, doesn't it? It implies triumph. Who wants a kingdom that's small and insignificant? I mean, can we even speak of a kingdom legitimately if there is so much rejection? Well, we can, and here's why. According to Jesus, it starts small. And let me show you how the parables do this. And if nothing else tonight, maybe I'll just give you a few few clues to help make sense of this chapter. Maybe it'll inspire further study uh, on your part. Let me show you how the parables uh, show this. Look first at the parable of a mustard seed in verses 31 and 32. Verse 31, and, and we're not even going to read the whole parable. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field, though it is the smallest of all seeds. And just stop right there. The kingdom of heaven begins like one of the smallest seeds known to man. Let's get down to verse 33, the parable of the yeast. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour. And again, stop there. The kingdom of heaven, it's like a small bit of yeast among 60 pounds of flour. See, starts small. Go back to the beginning of the chapter. The parable of the sower. This is a question we sometimes ask. Why does so much of the seed fail? Well, we're supposed to ask that because on one level, that's the impression we're given, right? The first three landing places for the seed result in failure. The birds eat the seed on the path. The sun scorches the seed with no root. Yes, it springs up quickly. You know, the, the sun's shining on the soil. It's shallow soil, but there's a layer of rock underneath. And so, yeah, it, it, it springs up. But when the roots try to go down, they hit that rock. And so the sun scorches it. And the third seed begins to grow. But the thorns grow with it and choke the seed. I mean, three quarters of the way through the story. And there's been nothing but defeat. Uh, last parable for now, uh, just on this first idea. The wheat and the weeds in verses 24 through 29. Listen to the first few verses there. Verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. So he sowed seed, but oh, we've got weeds among the wheat. This is going to result in a crop failure. And here's how this one would tie into you know, the current expectations about the kingdom. The Jews would have expected that when the kingdom came, the wicked were immediately eradicated. They were overthrown. But when Jesus interprets this parable, he'll do this at the end or towards the end of the chapter. He'll identify the field, excuse me, the field as the world. So the whole world. The good seed, that's the people of the kingdom, believers. The presence of God's kingdom in God's world. And the weeds, 
That's the people of the evil one. That's unbelievers. Think Genesis 3, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. And here's Jesus' point. The seed is here. The wheat is here. But the presence of the wheat doesn't immediately lead to the eradication of the weeds, to the overthrow of the wicked. In fact, God, the wise landowner, he's going to let both crops grow side by side. Both groups of people will continue in God's world until the end of the age. So the kingdom of God starts small. From all appearance, it's not even doing the things that it was expected to do. And I think there's actually a thought here for our encouragement. Sometimes it's hard to believe God's promises. We look at things going on in your life or outside, and then you may wonder, why isn't God doing things this way? 2 Corinthians 5, 7 gives the answer. We live by faith, not by sight. The encouragement for us, and we will see this the further we go into the chapter, is the way things are, is not the way things will always be. What you see, what you experience now, that is not your ultimate reality. The kingdom of God starts small. It apparently fails, but, Jesus will assure us, that's not the final story. Now, maybe along the way we struggle. John the Baptist did. Maybe we doubt. Maybe we wonder. But when you do, hear the words of Christ encouraging you to persevere in the faith. Because while the kingdom may not do what it's expected to do, it is truly an operation. So let's move on to look at the second idea. And it is this, the kingdom of God demands a response. We see this in the setup for the chapter, the, the, the answer to the disciples. Why do you speak in parables? Because what I have to say demands a response. Are you going to believe or not believe my message. Now this comes through very strongly in Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower. So in verse 19, Jesus says, When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. And when the text says there they don't understand it, it, it doesn't mainly mean that, that they're confused, you know, that the, the preacher wasn't clear. What it means is that they don't grasp it so as to believe it. It's challenging their thinking or their practice, and they're not responding to it with acceptance. I, I think understand there is probably functioning as a synonym for belief. And uh, the, the fourth seed, the seed on the Good soil, we hear those are people who hear and understand. So, so kind of a synonym just for believe. The kingdom message challenges us. It confronts us when we embrace this message. But if they hear that message and they don't embrace it and they don't believe it, if their lives aren't impacted, well, it just goes in one ear and out the other. The evil one comes along and snatches, he takes away what was sown in the heart. And that's a challenge to us. How do we listen to uh, the preaching of God's kingdom? The next two responses take it one step further, but they're really just more of the same. The seed that falls on rocky ground, well, well you get a, an initial response, verse 20. He hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But verse 21, when trouble or persecution comes, 
he quickly falls away because he has no root. And the root there really represents commitment. Here is a group of people where the message of the gospel is appealing on one level, but there is not a true commitment to the gospel, to the ultimate truths of the gospel. And when persecution arises, well, they abandon it as quickly as they embraced it. They, they may have heard the word, uh, but they still didn't grasp all, they still didn't believe all that Jesus was saying. And then verse 22, the seed that falls among the thorns, well, here are those who hear the word, but, verse 22, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. Again, maybe they are intrigued by the message, but you don't sense that they entered at the narrow gate, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. They still have competing loves, and those competing loves drive them away from the gospel. They do not love Christ exclusively. They still love their wealth, their life. Those things control them, and therefore they do not continue in the faith. And here's the point. It is only those who hear the word and embrace it who enter the kingdom. And so Jesus says in verse 23, the seed falling on good soil, well, that refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. They hear the gospel and they believe all that Jesus says and they embrace him as he is offered to them in the gospel, as he puts the demands before them of being citizens of his kingdom. That alone is the proper response to the gospel that the message demands and the proof then is seen in the bearing of fruit. They go out and bear a hundredfold or sixtyfold or thirtyfold. However you theologically understand all four groups, whether believers, unbelievers, etc., here's the point. Only one response bears fruit, and thus only one response ultimately is acceptable to the Lord. So he's putting this parable before them as a way of saying, you need to respond, and you need to respond rightly. And before we leave this point, look also at the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl. This is in verses 44, 45, and 46. Jesus tells us, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. And what I want you to notice here is the value of what this man is obtaining is somewhat hidden. See how that ties in with our first point? The treasure is buried in a field. The, this pearl seems to be among other trinkets. And it's an overlooked item, so to speak, in the market. But the person who is making the purchase, he sees the real value. And he is willing to give up everything he has in order to obtain the field, thus to get to treasure, in order to obtain the pearl. And so, and this will funnel into our third and final point, what he gains far outweighs the value of what he loses. The famous phrase, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. And so that's the question for us as we leave 
this point? How do we respond to God's word? Do we see the value in God's kingdom? Do we embrace it and believe it and follow it no matter the cost and love it more than anything else? And it doesn't mean that you're left not knowing how to function life, work a job, you know, what's the old phrase? So heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. No, it's once you order the ultimate loves, then we know how to rightly relate to family and culture and job and church. And so making those commitments to the Lord Jesus makes everything else fall into its proper place. And so let's come into that last main idea. The kingdom of God starts small and apparently fails, but it demands a response, a response of faith. And this then is the promise, the third idea, the kingdom of God ultimately triumphs. The kingdom of God starts small and apparently fails, but it ultimately triumphs. And it triumphs in two ways. One, it triumphs in the salvation of many believers. In the parable of the sower, the seed that falls on good, on good soil yields a crop. It yields a crop of a hundred, a sixty, or thirty times what was sown. So I know we, we might read that parable, it looks like, man, three out of four, this guy's a bad shooter. No, here's the point. So much may appear lost. The birds snatch, the sun scorch, the thorns choke. But what is yielded is abundant. It's 30, 60, maybe a hundred times what was sown. The yield far, far outweighs what was lost. So the point there isn't in any way to be negative. You know, three out of every four evangelistic, uh, you know, ventures is going to fail. It's actually emphasizing the complete opposite truth. That while God's kingdom may start small and meet with rejection, it's going to overwhelmingly triumph in the end. This farmer's no dummy. He knows where to throw the seed. So while some may fail, he gets an abundant crop. And you have the same idea in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Uh, verses 30 and 43, just for the, the short answers. Remember, what do we see about the wheat and the weeds? Both plants are going to grow together. Uh, in fact, the farmer says, if you pull up the weeds, well, it could destroy the wheat along the way. So granted, the, the coming of the wheat doesn't immediately remove the presence of the weeds. But at the same time, the presence of the weeds does not destroy the wheat. And when harvest time comes, the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the chaff, they are separated. And the wheat is safely brought into the barn. And so Jesus says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That enemy thought he was going to sow some weeds and destroy that field. Well, he, he failed. He lost. The wheat was gathered into the barn. And same thing in the parables, lastly, of the mustard seed and the yeast. They start small, and then we didn't read the end. But in the end, what happens? Well, that tiny mustard seed becomes a giant tree. The birds of the air can come and nest in its branches. Verse 32. The yeast, just a tiny bit of yeast, 60 pounds of bread. I mean, that's a lot of bread, though, 60 pounds. Well, that yeast works its way all the way through. 
And I know sometimes people read that as you know the gradual corruption of the church. Things are going to get worse because yeast in other places is a negative image. Well, that's totally out of tenor with this chapter as a whole. In this instance, it's a positive image. The yeast working its way through the dough is a sign of God's king start, kingdom starting small, but ultimately triumphing. And so you can be encouraged in your life. God is going to do his will. He's going to do what he has purposed for you. And more broadly speaking, in terms of the church and the world, God will do his will. He will do his will on earth as it is done in heaven. He will let his kingdom come as we pray each week for him to do. So keep praying because he's going to do it. But lest we be in balance, let's also see there is a second way in which God's kingdom triumphs, and that is in the punishment of the wicked. So one last time, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Jesus tells us in verse 39, the harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So God's kingdom appears and the wicked are permitted to remain. But at the end of the age, those who do not respond positively to Jesus, they will be punished. And we did look at the parable of the net in verses 49 and 50, but it essentially ends the same way. The fishermen gather with their net, good and bad, but they separate the good fish from the bad. And that's compared again to the, the end of the age, when the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing. And this plugs right back into how Jesus answered that original question. Why do you talk to them in parables? As he said in verse 12, Beware, lest the little you have be taken away from you. That was the day of salvation. That was when the religious leaders needed to hear the good news and respond to the preaching of the gospel. And I think this is a good reminder for us as God's people. Whenever we encounter God's word and, and God's truth, that we ask for those eyes to see and those ears to hear, that we may hear the good news of his kingdom, be warned against the follies of sin, take comfort in the triumph of his message, and embrace Christ as he offers himself to us in the gospel. So let's give thanks and let's pray. As, as Jesus said, whoever has ears... Let them hear. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the message of the kingdom. And I pray you would send us out into our lives, into your world, whatever the next six days hold, that we would do your will, pursue you, find joy and delight in uh, using our gifts and our calling and the vocations that you have given us. I pray for the church here and all the folks you keep them safe. That you keep them in good health. That you would keep them spiritually safe. That you would lead us not into temptation, but that you would deliver us from evil. And thank you that as we live in your world, we are citizens of your kingdom. And I pray we would delight in identifying as citizens of your kingdom. And that we wouldn't be troubled by the wicked. We wouldn't be troubled by the presence 
of evil, but instead with faith in you, with the cross before us, as we sang this morning, we would go forward rejoicing, sharing the good news, reflecting those virtues uh, that you form in us as people of your kingdom. So forgive us of our sins, help us to believe in the power of your message, and help us to follow you trusting. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.